For April 6, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Probably the biggest unknown in the outlook for climate change has been China, the engine of world growth for more than a decade now. China has been the marginal buyer of just about every commodity you can name. It was China's demand for oil that propped up world oil markets long after oil demand had tapered off in the OECD, at least until about a year and a half ago. And it has been China's demand for coal that sustained global coal markets to the point where it has been burning more coal than the rest of the world combined. But now its voracious appetite for coal seems to be waning. According to several analyses cited by a recent Brad Plumer article in Vox, which we'll link to in the show notes, China's coal demand went flat in 2013 to 2014 and actually fell by around 3.4% in 2015. And IEA says that coal generated less than 70% of Chinese electricity in 2015, 10 percentage points less than in 2011, a huge change for such a short period of time, and that nearly all of that power was shifted to hydro and wind. Unsurprisingly, China's carbon dioxide emissions fell right along with their decline in coal use. This is undoubtedly good news for the climate. But if the outlook for India's coal-powered emissions is hazy, as we discussed in episode 11, the outlook for China's coal-powered emissions is fuzzier still, with less reliable data, a much bigger and more complex economy, policy that shifts at the whim of the Communist Party, and the uncertain future of China's building boom of so-called ghost cities. China is also beginning to develop its shale gas, of which it is thought to have the vastest resources in the world. 1,115 trillion cubic feet of unproved, technically recoverable wet shale gas resources, according to the EIA, almost double their estimate for the United States. At the same time, China has been conducting the largest and fastest transition away from fossil fuels and toward renewables that the world has ever seen. But how far can renewables take them? Is China's weakening demand for coal durable? And how much shale gas can China actually produce? It's hard to get a clear sense of the situation without actually going there and seeing the unvarnished, unofficial reality firsthand. 
So today we'll be speaking with James West, a senior digital editor for Mother Jones and an extensively published journalist on China and its energy transition. In 2013, he and his colleague Jaya Lee went to China to investigate its first shale gas wells and produced an excellent series of video documentaries about what they found titled The Great Frack Forward. It's an eye-opening piece of work featuring highly personal interviews with regular citizens of the kind that we rarely see here in the West. I highly recommend checking it out. So without further preamble, let's bring James West into the conversation. Welcome, James, to the Energy Transition Show. That's so good. I feel like I've We've been Twitter buddies for so long, it's finally good to actually talk to you. I know, I feel the same way. It's about time. It's about time. So let's start with your trip to China, because I think that's just an amazing thing that you pulled off there. So in 2014, you and your colleague, Jay Lee, went to China and investigated its use of coal and its emissions situation in person, and also fracking, and produced an excellent five-part video series for Climate Desk called The Great Frack Forward about what you saw there. And we'll link to that in the show notes, but briefly, for our listeners who have not seen it, what is that series about? Well, Jay Lee and I kind of went on this hunch that natural gas in China could be something that finally got it off this, you know, as you and your listeners know, this sort of addiction to deadly and dirty coal. The vast majority of China's sort of miracle energy boom and its lift out of poverty has been relying on coal. 70% of its economy is based on coal. What could natural gas do to unlock the potential to move away from coal? That was the proposition that we were investigating. Right. China is sitting on arguably the world's biggest reserve of natural gas, shale natural gas. If it can get to it, that could possibly build this you know, so-called bridge that we're always promised away from coal and onto cleaner, hopefully less emitting technologies. And so this was the idea. What if it could break the addiction to coal by using this new technology of fracking? We knew, for example, that the State Department under Hillary Clinton was advocating strongly for new technologies in the renewable field and in fracking right around the world. We knew that the U.S. government was encouraging U.S. companies to get involved in fracking in China and was playing sort of host, trying to meet these people where they are in China and introduce their executives to key players in China. We knew all this. What really was the key for us was we got invited to this top-level meeting in this uh, city called Xi'an, which for your listeners, you might recognize as home to the Terracotta Warriors. That's its most famous oh, yeah. sort of calling card. Right. It's also this really historic and amazing and polluted Chinese city where we got invited to this top conference, this fracking conference where we got unprecedented access and saw the then U.S. Ambassador Gary Locke give a speech. We saw the executives of Halliburton and other U.S. energy giants there trying to get a piece of the pie, really. Mm. And from then, we just went on this amazing road trip where we saw for ourselves the fracking wells that had just begun to be sunk deep in rural Sichuan province, which is this lush and gorgeous part of the world, and really started to delve into what would a fracking revolution in China look like. And 
really, is it worth it given the kind of environmental damage that we began to see everywhere around us? You know, I, I watched that documentary when it came out and thought it was excellent, particularly because it showed a really an unscripted, unvarnished side of China that we rarely see, even in documentaries here in the West. Was it difficult to get into all those places and get that footage and then get back out with it? You know, China is this weird place. It's sort of lawless in one way, but then really strict on, on the other hand. We had remarkable luck. We would turn up in a rural hamlet of Sichuan, very small town. We would ask a few people where the fracking wells were. People wanted to tell this story. I've never seen anything like it. People really? would di direct us to these fracking wells, and we would literally drive onto them in some instances and pull out a camera and start talking to people. Wow. It's so new, or, or at least it was back then, that we had very little opposition to us filming there was the occasional sort of scuffle here and there why are you filming you can't film here the kind of usual reporting in china problems yeah but in general chris i have to say it was remarkable people wanted to tell their stories there was this amazing moment where we're standing in this farm these these rice paddies classic sort of southern china scene steam rising off these paddies trying to film a, a, a fracking well, a local comes up, invites us in, tells us these most extraordinary stories about how they were promised money from these wells, they were promised that these wells would be clean, this weird stuff kept on coming up from their own drinking wells, they could no longer drink the water there. People were just really pregnant with stories to tell us, and we encountered that absolutely everywhere that we went. Amazing. You you must have just managed to land there right during a crucial window when things were just getting going, but they hadn't really clamped down on the controls and the security yet. Exactly. And these are places in China that aren't particularly used to either A, foreigners asking questions, hmm. or B, the types of uprisings and protests and things of that nature in which are, which are far more common on the eastern seaboard, which has all of the population and has these strings of protests all the time about chemical plants, coal plants, pollution, air pollution, degradation of water, that kind of thing that happens pretty regularly in other parts. This is a pretty lush and pretty, you know, I have to say pretty idyllic part of the world as an outsider. But then when you scratch the surface... There's all of this discontent. There's all of this sort of um, really uh, Upton Sinclair type <laughs> real uh, people aren't asked about what they want. Uh, people aren't informed of their rights. P their promises aren't kept. There's a lot of discontent brewing down in that area of China. Yeah. You met numerous people on that trip who were displaced, who suffered damage to their farmlands mm -hmm. and their personal health, or who who actually lost a lot of personal wealth, I think, as a consequence of, of this rush for shale gas. Why do you think China did it so badly, such that it incurred all that damage? Or was there not a more equitable and environmentally friendly way to go about developing this shale gas resource? You know, I think there is a more equitable way. There is a more friendly way. But in China, it's sort of the case of let's do it and then let's clean it up later. That's how one state regulator who had been campaigning for 
regulatory controls over this boom for years when we met him and it's sort of been stifled his research money had been drained away he'd been trying to propose all of these rules china is just one of those sort of remarkable places where huge enterprises can exist overnight almost and and whole parts of the economy are just brought to life and questions are asked afterwards is you've got to remember there's no civil society in china right there's no community group that's advocating for the school to be you know a certain 100 feet away from a fracking well there's no right there's no rights essentially yeah. in the way that you or I in the West understand them to be and, and, and what your listeners would most regularly understand them to be. It's one thing to have a problem with the Marcellus shale field uh, or in Dimmick or in West Texas where there's a lot of water issues, uh, there's a drought. You know, it's one thing to, there. At least you can protest. At least there's a civil society that can bring your concerns to, I don't know, the local state house or the council or whatever it is. In China, there's just literally none of that. And so things happen, people aren't asked, people don't have a sense of their own rights. People aren't environmentalists in China in the way that we th would think of the word environmentalist, but they, they certainly want clean water and they want clean air. And when you ask people about it, this is also a society that has been a one-child policy society for so long. People have a very different sense of what they're giving their their only child. And if it's dirty water and it's dirty air, then suddenly the whole equation changes and people start to complain. So it's a it's a it's a completely different dynamic in China and, and always has been. But particularly on this issue where you can just throw a whole lot of money, uh, you can be abetted by enormous amounts of global capital that is being welcomed into China by the Chinese leadership and, of course, U.S. companies are wanting to prospect there in, in the way that gold rush people used to prospect with pans in the river. And then you kind of have this toxic mix of discontent and, and money all in the one picture. Wow. You really paint a vivid and interesting picture there. I mean, you're, you're right. It is very different than something we might imagine over here. Yeah. I mean, completely different. I've been up to Pennsylvania. I've been to various different fracking places in the U.S., to North Dakota, to Williston. Um, it's very, very different. People in America have a sense that if things go too far, they can complain. I, you know, I'm not saying that things have been rosy in the United States at all for fracking development, and I think the, the horse has been put behind the cart, um, to use a hackneyed expression. Yeah in a lot of U.S. fracking development, but nowhere near the scale of what I saw in China by, by any stretch of the imagination. Right. So let's go ahead and start putting some numbers on this because, you know, I'm kind of a data guy. This show is about mm -hmm. data. So let's talk about mm -hmm. some data. So the point of China's pursuit of shale gas was to displace coal. So how much shale gas is China actually producing now and how much coal is it displacing? Well, I don't think it's displacing any coal. I think China is one of those economies where it's a sort of above above the line, everything goes, we want everything. You know, fracking is is so much in its infancy there. We saw maybe 
half a dozen fracking wells when we were there and visited them ourselves. I think we're now talking only in its hundreds. Mm -hmm. This is minuscule when you compare it to any other energy industry, particularly hydro and particularly coal in China. It doesn't displace some of these giant energy industries. The promise of fracking is that it might. The promise of fracking is that it might also offset the need for China to import gas, which would change a kind of economic equation and, and potentially maybe even take up a bigger portion of their energy needs if it was cheaper. But the geography in China, the difficulty of getting to this stuff is it's an engineering feat that even some of the Western companies that we were talking to still haven't quite cracked. It's very deep in the ground. It's in very mountainous terrain in rural Sichuan. You know, given how spectacular it is, if you just imagine these sort of soaring mountains and these roads that bend around these mountains that are thousands of feet in the air, some well has to sink through all of that terrain and down into the actual shell bed. That's a that's a huge amount of energy in and of itself. It's a huge amount of water. Sichuan is it is a very water rich place, but not infinitely so. And a lot of the wastewater gets put back into the Yangtze River, which is a huge bread bowl for the entire not only China but the entire world. So there's a resource question here. Do you proportion a lot of the water to go to fracking, which to do it right would probably have to be a substantial amount of water, which would divert it away from agriculture. This is all to say in a very wonky way, in a very nerdy way, there's a lot still to do before this so-called fracking revolution takes place. That's not to say that it won't happen and that the Chinese government doesn't want it to happen, but there's a bit of a moving target here still in terms of what China wants and what China can actually get from this enterprise. Right. So basically not much, not much shale gas production yet. Not yet. Yeah. That doesn't mean there's not a, a whole bunch of money splashing around over there. When we were there, we were reporting that in you know 2012, Royal Dutch Shell was inking a contract with one of the big state players over there that was like $1 billion a year for the next several years just in shale gas. Wow. BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Hess, they've all signed joint ventures to explore shale prospects in, in, in China. A lot down in Sichuan, also up in a very restive area called Xinjiang, which has a, a big population uh, that really doesn't want Chinese enterprise coming in there. The Uyghur minority. Chesapeake Energy alone got $4.52 billion out of its deal with another giant state player there mm. there's a lot of money splashing around here and, and you know you can't you can't ignore the money but there's a, a certain reality here it's still you know caution you that it's still in in the prospecting days and the people that i would listen to the people that i would believe would really take a lot of this with with several grains of salt. Yeah, no, there's definitely a good deal of risk. Mm -hmm. you know, there's geological risk. There's all sorts of risk that 
we're far from understanding yet, as I've seen anyway, uh, exactly what the geology looks like over there, exactly how perspective those shales are. We, we do know, I think we know anyway, that, that there really aren't other shales in the world that are exactly like U.S. shales in terms of how they perform once you frack them how well they keep the fractures open, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how, how efficiently you're able to frack through it. And, you know, there may be quite a few things uh, technologically that have to be learned in order to really make the whole thing pay off. That's right. And I, I don't think it's any secret that China can get stuff done in a way that other countries can't. And I think if they want to solve a problem, they're going to solve it. I don't think there's any other country in, in the world right now and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with this, that is doing more on this front, throwing more at this problem just from a sheer capital point of view Absolutely. than China is. Yeah. Solar, wind, fracking, nuclear, uh, you know. It's astonishing. Ev- yeah. Every single possible thing because this is the biggest challenge that China has right now, this nexus of the environment and energy is the key to its survival as a one-party state. And, you know, that's where it becomes a really fascinating political question, more than it becomes a question about can they frack a well. Sure, they can frack a well. You and I both know they can frack a well. Uh, if they want to, if they can get it done, they can do whatever the, the hell they want on this front. But where it becomes really interesting for me is why are they doing this? Why is this so important to them? It's not that they want to save the world. Far from it. They want to be a big superpower that is controlled by one party, and that one party can control everything. And if they can keep a lid on continual economic growth without people getting upset that then they, they can no longer breathe the air, um, then you're looking at a pretty successful state at that point still in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, in 50 years' time. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and we're going to revisit that in a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about just kind of how the greenhouse gas emission situation looks over there. So we've been told repeatedly over the past several years that China is building a new coal-fired power plant every three days or whatever, and that it's, I mean, it's certainly the world's number one emitter of carbon emissions. But in a recent article, which we'll link to in the show notes, you write that China's greenhouse gas emissions may have actually peaked already and that it might even reduce its emissions well in advance of its own 2030 target that it pledged at the last climate summit in Paris. Why don't you fill us in a little bit on that data? Right. So there's a really interesting growing research consensus from people who watch China regularly that perhaps they're going to meet this goal maybe five years early. You recall that They put in their Paris Agreement and in the historic U.S.-China agreement that led to it that they're going to start tapering off their emissions by 2030. This is a huge thing, you know, for China, who has long been recalcitrant in these climate talks, to finally agree to. Let's start reining these in, and yes, America, we're with you. We're We're actually going to negotiate with you this time. In Paris, and I think that that was historic, and I think that it unlocked an enormous amount of political potential that led to to Paris. There's now this growing consensus that mm, you know what, China, you could maybe probably do some more and be more aggressive about this, because all signs are pointing to the fact that 
this is going to start if it hasn't already five, six years before 2030. The most recent report is from the London School of Economics and was co-authored by the famous Lord Stern. Oh, yes. UK's sort of luminary climate economist, Nicholas Stern. And he's been, you know, I think in the range of China watches, he's been pretty bullish on China's ability to begin to rein this in for a long time. And most recently in this report, basically saying if they hadn't already peaked in 2014, and the data kind of says that they may have, they're certainly going to peak early. This is a position that Greenpeace holds. I think it's a position that a lot of China watchers hold right now, to the point where it's sort of put China in this weird position. China is such a defensive, weird player on, you know, on global politics that they were forced into this position recently, where they had to say, no, 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 we're still emitting, we're still growing, we're still emitting, <laughs> which was which was really hilarious. Right, because, because normally they'd want to be saying, no, we're doing much right. better than you think. Right, they're so yeah. sensitive to any kind of criticism of their policy settings, yeah. specifically that they were forced into this absurd sort of position where they, where they had to say publicly that it was still growing, which was really funny for people that sort of know China's psychology on this stuff. It's like you cannot criticize China's policy settings. And this was also a, a period of time where they were actually putting the, the sort of final bits and pieces together on their 13th five-year plan. And this, this five-year plan is this sort of highly scrutinized document in China. It's this very central planning kind of very old-school Chinese document that lays out how things will be over the next five years. And they were putting the final touches to this when LSE came out with their report, which I think made them even more skittish about uh, about this report, and maybe they should be doing more to curb their their emissions. So it, it's sort of this, this comedy of the absurd that goes on with China quite regularly, I think. Why do you think China is taking action on its emission situation so much more quickly than people expected? Or, or to put it another way, why is the popular perception of China's emissions problem so out of date? Well, you know, we have people regularly in, in American public life using China as a scapegoat for everything. Or as <laughs> an excuse for inaction. Right. Any excuse for inaction can be pinned to China. And I think that has historically been accurate. You know, China has, as I said before, been a non-player or, you know, deliberately going against global consensus about how to act on on climate change for some time. I think the real tipping point has been the environmental crisis that has enveloped millions of people in China. This has become not only an environmental crisis, but a political crisis as well. You have to remember a few key things about China when you when you talk about this. China's great bargain with its people, going back to when it opened up, up under Deng Xiaoping, uh, the historic Nixon visit, all the way back then, its bargain with its people was, we will give you prosperity as long as you just stick with us. We will give you money, uh, we'll put you in apartments, you can go buy an Ikea couch eventually. <laughs> You know, there's all of these sort of middle class things that we will give you. Just don't complain. 
keep us in power and we will give you everything you want. I think that for the first time in a generation which has really been exposed to a, a staggering amount of growth and a staggering amount of alleviation of poverty and a huge increase in the standard of living and an amazing spectacular galactic level of growth for the first time people have really begun to see the downsides of that and the health implications of that and the fact that kids have to wear gas masks to go to school the fact that regularly schools are shut down the fact that people can't go to work the fact that people are dying of cancer at record levels in china the fact that you know routinely more often than not the the city's air that you breathe registers crisis points on any scale that is accepted by any kind of world health organization including the world health health organization so the population itself is becoming active about this issue and it's becoming political about this issue and that is the chinese government's achilles heel if there's anything that can bring down the chinese government not i'm not saying that it that it will but if there is anything that can it is the public mobilizing about any issue and this this one is at a crisis point for the chinese government and now they've got a whole another sort of fuel on the fire and and that's the layoffs that are going on so just to bring people up to date for the past decade or so the world has largely depended on china to be the marginal buyer of just about everything particularly commodities like iron ore and oil and in my view which i admit was an unpopular one it was the softening of chinese demand for oil that really precipitated the decline in oil prices that began over a year and a half ago now as you pointed out in a recent article the chinese government is cutting 1.3 million jobs in the coal industry and another half a million in the steel industry and that it's also imposing a 3 year moratorium on all new coal mines and plans to shutter 1000 existing coal mines this year alone with more cuts to come and all of these changes are just breathtaking in size i mean anything of the kind in the us would be just devastating you know and and as the economist recently pointed out these layoffs will, will just as i said add fuel to the fire the thousands of strikes and protests that have gone on in china over the past 2 years most of which were related actually to lost jobs and non-payment of wages output of both steel and coal fell by 6% in the first 2 months of this year alone And China's total debt has risen to 240% of GDP, which is of which the biggest holders are state-owned companies. So, you know, I, I get that China is able to get away with these things because it's a command economy run by the Communist Party. But this just seems like an explosive brew here. I mean, will the party be able to continue containing these protests, or could this actually lead to mass unrest? And are these millions of workers eventually going to get paid what they earned, or is it, or is this actually the beginning of the great unraveling in China? Look, I don't think any one thing will be the great unraveling of anything. You know, the, the Chinese government is very good at this. They know this calculus better than anyone. How do we balance this environmental crisis with the crisis in the economy, with the crisis of social inequality? China has the biggest income disparity of any country in the world. How do we balance all of these things 
and and there's got to be give and take, right? There's got to be a little risk given here to a little reward here and there. And I, you know, I think in general, my sort of analysis, and, you know, I don't think anyone knows this for sure, but my analysis is that any one issue is going to simmer at a certain rate in China for a long time. You know, the the social inequality issue is devastating, but do you make decisions about that or do you make decisions about the environmental crisis? Do you make decisions about layoffs versus cleaning up the air? You know, there's, there's this brutal calculus that is going on the very top levels of the Chinese government that has all of these things in balance. And the one guiding force is them staying in power. And whether that's shuttering, there's going to be 10, over nearly 11,000 coal mines that will eventually be forced to close in the country. Wow. If it means doing that for for this kind of painful gain of shifting off primary production and onto, onto more service economy jobs, they're wagering that that's going to work. Whether it does, who knows? We, you know, we'll be there to report on it throughout. But I wouldn't I wouldn't fall into the trap, and, and I, I, I used to very much so, about even things like the internet. I was like you know, young and naive and thought maybe the internet could bring down China. Maybe it could diversify public opinion. Maybe it could give voice to dissidents. Maybe it could create a civil society. None of those things has, have happened. And so I think the, the trap with China is to get drawn into these sort of easy conclusions that would make sense for any other country, right? Like if we were seeing the coalescence of this much inequality and this much sort of degradation of, uh, of demand for, for steel and for all of these different things in any other country, we'd, we would write it off and we would say there has to be some structural changes here. For China, it's so vast and so complicated and so unpredictable and there's so much that we don't know as outsiders and so much that we are probably almost definitely lied to about in terms of the official numbers that any conclusion that we try to draw from any of these tea leaves is just bound to be wrong you know it's it's sort of like strap yourself on go for the ride see where it takes you make sure you have a critical mind while you're doing it but to pretend that any one of these things is is going to result in any other one of these things is is misleading i think you know speaking of that data question this is one of the biggest conundrums for me is what is its actual demand for resources i mean the the, the official data is clearly unreliable and i'm not the only observer to think so by any means mm. you know particularly when it comes to its actual economic growth rate i mean it could be far below what it claims Mm-hmm. And it could be importing far more oil to fill its new SPR than it admits. Uh, in fact, that might be one of the answers to the so-called missing barrels problem that we've been talking about in the oil press lately. It could be exporting far less stuff than it says. D- do you have any sense about the reliability of official data from China or what parts of it we can believe and what parts of it we should be skeptical about? I think you can basically say, let's be skeptical of everything. Let's <laughs> Let's – not at all, like every single thing that we read about its economic data, I think, should be passed through 
lashings of of doubt and lashings of skepticism. And I think most people who take China seriously would say that that's true. I think we saw that with the massive revision of emissions recently. I think a lot of Chinese watchers knew that that was coming and had prepared for it. And I don't think it upset international understandings of how much China is emitting. But the economy is so vast and so unknown and there's such lack of transparency all the way down to the local level. The the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing at all in China. And local officials are encouraged to like wholesale lie about data all the time that you can imagine just how widespread the the problems with the data actually is. And so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, everything, let's question absolutely everything. Let's, let's, let's try to go back to first principles. Let's try to get some international accounting transparency built into these deals from the very beginning. Let's put it in free trade agreements. Let's, let's treat it as talking about human rights, for example. Let's bring it up all the time. How do we make sure? Can we get some independent monitoring? Can we somehow encourage China to have a a healthier relationship to non-governmental organizations so that we can have this kind of independent monitoring that other countries rely on and the international community can rely on? I don't think there's any one silver bullet that will enable us to trust economic or emissions data out of China. There's this there's this host of engagement activities that needs to happen on all different kinds of levels, led by the US, I think, but also now under this framework that, that can really begin to apply pressure. Sounds like you're advocating a don't trust but verify policy. Absolutely. I mean, is there, <laughs> I think like, is there any other way <laughs> is the question that leaders have to grapple with. It's the one that got China to the table in the first place, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, we, we can't tell China what to do. In fact, when we do, it ends badly. So what are the other options here? And engagement, I think, is, is really the only way that has proven to work. And be skeptical, be educated, listen to the people that know what they're talking about, but you know, try to make them as accountable as possible. Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago that China had done some revisions of its official numbers. For those who might not be familiar with what you're talking about, what what was that about? Why this broke in the international press was sort of a bit misleading. The New York Times did a story about how China had revised its numbers. Uh, prominent global environmental organization ended up questioning this greenpeace was like this is this is not right the times has got this wrong okay so backpedaling a little bit let me put this in context for you okay the times reported that the world's biggest carbon polluter china had ratcheted up the amount of coal that it said that it was burning every year and that figure they put at 17% more than the chinese government had previously disclosed and this was back in November 2015. Okay. And so this 17% figure on its face is absolutely staggering, right? Like how can a country get 
it wrong to the tune of 17%. And one of, one of the article's conclusions was that this would somehow derail international negotiations. You've got to remember that this was before the Paris Agreement. Yeah, a couple of weeks before, I think. Right, yeah. exactly. And I think that's that contributed to why it was such a blockbuster number. Yeah. China has been lying to the world right. to the tune of 17% of its coal consumption. But if you scratch the surface, this was known to all of the major environmental organizations, the World Resource Institute, Greenpeace, the information had actually first been made public in the February, the year before November, by the Chinese government, by a routine kind of statistical assessment that it put out, this kind of boring, very dry, very vanilla, you wouldn't want to read this at all, it's, it's better than ambient, this kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> puts, you right to, puts you right to sleep. But the people that are paid to read it all knew about this stuff really early on, and so the the, the sort of premise of this 17% revision was actually not particularly new to anyone who was looking at China and had certainly been factored into the Paris negotiations and had been factored into the way that, you know, climate scientists and environmental advocates had been treating China since the February. So we're talking, you know, eight months or so before this scoop so-called scoop sort of landed on the international stage. So that's what I mean by taking this statistical stuff in China with a real grain of salt. It takes a long time for it to filter out. There's translations that are done that, that kind of get picked up by journalists, and rightly so. I'm not not necessarily blaming the Times for making this a story. I think yeah, it is no, a that story. That was an important story for They're sure. A very important story for us yeah. to know about. But the context is equally as important. Yeah, and yeah. translating the body of knowledge that we know already for readers is just as important. And so this is what I mean by by realizing that it's a total, excuse my French, shit show in China when it comes to official statistics. And sometimes it takes months for them to be absolutely finalized to the point where we can trust them. And even then, I, I would say that it's... It's, it's like a Salvador Dali painting. Sometimes up is down and sometimes left is right. And sometimes the data is corrupt because nobody knows and sometimes it's corrupt because they wanted it that way. That's right. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, and maybe this is getting a little too philosophical for my station here, but go with me for a second. Sometimes I think that we have to be good faith players with China, right? We we see all of the changes that they're making. And yes, there's a lot that China does badly. There's a lot that they can do better. And of course, you know, everyday life in China should be better than it is. But if you're to take these sort of broad historical shifts and trends, there's a lot of good news coming out of China. And, you know, I don't say that lightly. And there's a lot of good trends coming out of China. We have reason to be optimistic that's not to say that things shouldn't be wildly better than they are and that the Chinese government shouldn't wildly treat its people better than it does. But there's no reason for us to be bad faith actors in the relationship with China at this point, I don't think. There's, there's only good to be said out of engagement. And every time that I've been to China, 
I see engagement on absolutely every level. You know, this fracking trip, for example, there were scientists there as well as Halliburton executives, but there were academics. There were people involved in environmental regulation. I think when the U.S. engages with China and sends its best and brightest, it's not as if China's ignoring that stuff. It's not as if China doesn't want it to be best practice. There are capacity issues. There are human rights issues. There are civil rights issues. There are huge environmental problems. But it doesn't mean we, we, we shouldn't be good faith actors with China at this point, I don't think. I think that's a really important point and probably one that's not made often enough, to be honest. And I think it's not a particularly popular point of view, I don't think, necessarily. Oh, no, it's um, so much nicer to just vilify everyone else because we're perfect. Right, and I, I just don't think a, a real assessment of the amount that China has done in the last even the last six months really backs up a position that, you know, you, at some point you have to report the good news as well as the bad. Well, and we're going to talk about that good news because they are by far the world leader in energy transition right now. And, and that story too is, I think, underreported. But before we get to that, there's a conundrum that I, I just cannot get my head around, and that's these ghost cities. Mm. I mean, it just boggles my mind that they would be building entire cities without having actual demand of people who want to live in them. Mm. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder if China hasn't made a massive blunder here and committed this just an outrageous misallocation of resources, uh, particularly considering the slowing birth rate in China. I mean, is it possible that all this new real estate will actually get occupied? I don't, I can't see any way that it could possibly. So I think two things to say about that. The first is I've seen some of those places and it's spooky, you know. Oh, it's got to be just freaky. You catch these super fast trains through these industrial belts of Northeast China, for example, and these whole like apparitions out of the smog appear and then vanish and then appear and then vanish. And these whole mini cities as big as downtown Manhattan, bigger perhaps. And there's nobody there. All unoccupied and this kind of netting of cranes everywhere and this enormous amount of growth. It's shocking and is makes your stomach churn about why this is happening the second thing to say is I think that that economic rationale is beginning to change. And, you know, I don't want to say that without evidence, but I now know that in th this pollution crisis is so important for the government that instead of sole GDP indicators, which I think is the birth of those ghost cities, has been this imperative for the the, the flax of the Chinese Communist Party to, to fiddle their numbers and to just stack growth in the form of construction and steel industry and all of that nonsense. I think that's slowly giving way to another kind of key performance indicator, which is the environment. And it's not perfect. And certainly when I was there, there's, you know, I can imagine that that is uh, another indicator that can be just fiddled. But local governments are now required to uh, in, in, in a lot of different places in China, and I'm not sure exactly to what extent this is happening, but lots of places that I went, 
and now using environmental cleanliness, PM 2.5, the particulate matter in the air, which is most deadly to human consumption. There are now goals for that kind of stuff for local governments to begin to curb the environmental hazards of their construction. So they're now putting in play this idea that you have to balance GDP growth and growth per unit of GDP with environmental concerns. And and I would say my prediction is, if I'm to make one, that that will shake down into some of these places not being built. I don't know whether they're going to get inhabited. I have no idea. But I would say that the sole GDP incentive for these local places to throw up these buildings is is going to be imbalanced with some of these environmental concerns. Well, and I think you're basically reinforcing what I what I had suspected about this, which is that they were building these ghost cities not because actually anyone needed them or because, you know, they really expected there was going to be people that wanted to live in them, but because it was a way to prop up GDP growth rates. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that is now without a shadow of a doubt. The most interesting things that, that we saw when we were there were these local campaigns by uh, what are called gonkos there, They're sort of government-approved non-governmental organizations. There's an inherent conflict there. But <laughs> these organizations that have been government-sanctioned that now can finally talk about the environment in a way that when I first visited China back in um, 2005, uh, over 10 years ago now, was impossible. When I first went there, there was no conversation about the environment in any sanctioned way. Now you see this flourishing of talk about the environment, in part because they have to, because otherwise the, the public would just go absolutely ballistic. You know, one of the most interesting things is that environmentalists can now talk about the environment in a way that they never were allowed to before. Two stories about that. We visited Ying Li, at the time the biggest solar manufacturer uh, in the world. It's now been surpassed, but at the time it was. And we visited this amazing facility that was building in front of our eyes solar panels that were destined for rooftops uh, in Arizona as well as you know, South America, everywhere. And it was phenomenal. And the people that ran that place spoke the fluent language of global renewable energy like I've never heard anyone speak it. They were totally singing from the same hymn book as, I don't know, California lawmakers, for example. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, back in 2007, they were my top pick. When I was a solar market analyst, they were my top pick in the world for solar companies to invest in. And they've benefited not only from kind of top-down government regulatory policy in China, but they have benefited from this huge boom in, in the global market, right? But the language that came in, um, out of their mouths is, is what was really instructive for me. If I had met them, I think, 10 years ago, you know, obviously it was a different kind of place then, but they wouldn't be talking about the cleanliness of the air or right. how it, how it's good for the environment to have solar panels or climate change or, you know, any of these things. In, in corporate China as well as Chinese society, there is now a language by which people talk about the environment which didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, maybe in private people knew about the degradation of the environment, 
but it was censored widely. I mean, there's still a cat and mouse game. You know, you'll recall this documentary that went viral online called Under the Dome, which was this pretty phenomenal sort of inconvenient truth style documentary by a former TV presenter in China. And it went viral and the Chinese government sort of entertained for a little while to allow it to flourish and then clamped down on it. And then, but people had already seen it and it became the most sort of viral thing on the Chinese internet for weeks and weeks and weeks. There's still a cat and mouse game with how much they're willing to tolerate, but my God, it's so much more than 10 years ago. And young people, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds are now growing up in a, in a kind of environment where they can talk about the air pollution in a way that they couldn't. And I don't think that that can be underestimated. That is a new generation that has a language by which to be active about this. And it's delicate for the Chinese government, but I think that it's changing. Well, okay, so let's let's turn to the bright side of the story then. You know, in less than a decade, China's gone from having almost no wind and solar power to having the most wind and solar capacity of any nation on earth, plus installing more every year than any other nation by a long shot. For, for a little perspective, China installed about 17 gigawatts of solar PV in last year, in 2015, which brings it to a total of 43 gigawatts of installed capacity. That means that China installed more than twice as much new solar capacity last year as the U.S. did, and now has one and a half times as much solar installed capacity as the U.S. does. Similarly, China installed a whopping 30.5 gigawatts of wind capacity last year, or about three and a half times as much new wind as the U.S. installed, and now has a total of 145 gigawatts of installed wind capacity, which is about twice as much as the U.S. has. I mean, this is just phenomenal for less than a decade of activity. Mm. And its projections are that actually these installations will continue to increase. But at the same time, all is not well. Uh, thanks to a lack of grid capacity for all these projects, China has been forced to curtail output at some of its wind and solar farms and actually has reportedly fallen behind as much as 18 months on making subsidy payments to solar project developers. And those developers in turn have had cash flow problems and have had to sell their interest in projects and stop further development activities. So kind of a mixed bag there on, on the downstream end of these projects. So are these indications that China has once again overdone its ambitions and is living beyond its means? Or do you think that they're just sort of growing pains in an extraordinarily rapid transition to renewable energy? Both. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, there's well-documented overcapacity here. I think there are growing pains. I think they probably have invested too much too early but this is what China does, right? If they want it to happen, if they're going to build the train from Beijing to Lhasa in Tibet, they're just going to do it, right? They don't really care about this stuff so much. I think the real sort of issues are, are around its international obligations, right? Can they meet their obligations under trade agreements, under... Uh, international norms under what's expected legally of them so that there's no dumping of this stuff. If there is dumping, uh, is there going to be a muscular response to it from the United States or, or the EU? 
these are sort of things that are at play. You know, these are things that are ongoing. So it's hard for me to sort of stare into the crystal ball and go, it was a mistake because we just kind of don't know. This history is, is getting written as we speak and who knows who it's going to benefit. I mean, it doesn't look like China is in any way going to slow down its capacity building on this front, as, as you rightfully point out in, in the introduction to that question, whether the world economy sort of kicks back and says, no, there's, there's too much, who knows, I, you know, there's a lot to happen is the key point that I would make about all this stuff. This is sort of history at play as we, as we look at China and, and marvel at its growth. Uh, all we can sort of do is is report the the fits and starts and and, and treat it with some skepticism. But it, from on balance, I don't think it's going anywhere, and I think it, the the general trend is is positive on, on that front. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that their push toward renewables is definitely going to continue. One of the things that I'm still waiting to see actually is how much how much of this grid building effort is actually happening and and how well are they coordinating it and what is their planning around it because it seems to me that that's been one of the big sort of missing elements in this whole picture i mean it's one thing to say let's put up a bunch of giant solar farms or a bunch of giant wind farms but it's quite another to figure out okay well exactly where do we need to bring the transmission and distribution grids together and how do we balance all this stuff and i think that's the part that i don't ever i don't ever see any reporting on that from anywhere Right. I mean, it's instructive to to know that the the world's well, China's biggest turbine maker is called Xinjiang Goldwind Science and Technology. Xinjiang is this vast northwestern autonomous region that has a lot of problems in terms of civil rights and and all of that kind of stuff. But it's also just very remote. It's super windy, but it's also really remote. So embedded in the name of its biggest wind producer is its remoteness and its difficulty to connect to these transmission and distribution grids. So I don't think they're unaware of this problem. And I think if they're serious about the embrace of renewable energy, which by all reports they are, then I would suggest that they're going to make getting that power to the east of the country where the bulk of the industry is, is going to be a huge priority for the Chinese government going forward. Mm. You know, it seems to me that with China showing this kind of leadership, not only on renewable energy and energy transition, but, but on climate as well. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, probably on track to significantly beat its own targets set at the COP21 conference. Where does that leave the U.S.? and its own emission problems? And and where does it leave the defenders of the fossil fuel complex who have argued for years that it would be pointless to for the U.S. or perhaps your home country, Australia, to reduce its emissions unless China did first? Right. I think it, it gets rid of that argument entirely. And that's part of the reason why I'm so fascinated by um, this story. It's not about necessarily the gigawatts of installed capacity that happened in the last month you know that's 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 something that i report but the bigger picture is what's interesting to me is that the 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 global politics of this have shifted and it's it 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 might be the last vestige of 
global denial that, that people can rely on. If China comes to the table, and I think this is what was so important about the US-China climate pact, was that finally we had the two superpowers of, of meaningful emissions importance finally fighting from the same corner. And that's the story that I want to tell. That's the story that I think upsets the status quo the most in Australia, uh, where I'm from, and in the United States, is that it can't be relied on as an excuse anymore. Uh, and it has been for just so long. There's no discernible climate denialism amongst the ranks of the Chinese Communist Party. There never has been. Hmm. They're a bunch of engineers. <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. I think the majority of the Politburo are, are engineers. They're scientists. They're, they're people that practical to the point of being excruciating. <laughs> there is no political advantage for them to deny climate change is happening and that they are causing it. There's no political advantage. And so it shows the political obstinance in this country for what it is, which is just cynical. And, you know, we can talk about why that exists and what they're pandering to. And that's a kind of separate conversation. But the fact that China is acting on climate change, and we can debate and have been debating about how effective they've been on that front, the fact that they are changes the game for me entirely and shows up political denialism for, for what it is, which is just political denialism. And I think we finally have proof of that in China's act, actions. I think you're absolutely right. Wow. Well, James, that was a quick hour and I <laughs> so enjoyed talking to you. That was really fun. No worries. I, I'd love to do it again and let's, uh, let's keep chatting. That was James West, senior digital editor for Mother Jones, former senior producer for Climate Desk, and the author of Beijing Blur. There will probably always be an enormous gap, at least for those of us here in the West, between the reality on the ground in China and what we hear about it, partly because the information just hasn't been made public, but also partly because there are interests in China who deliberately distort that information, not just within the Communist Party, but all the way down to the local level. It's just very hard to get a grip on the truth. That's why I have such admiration for gutsy journalists like James and his colleagues who are willing to go over there and find clever ways of getting the real story and telling it as plainly as they can, because it's just a very complex situation. On the one hand, yes, you have the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide and the world's largest user of coal, the world's largest car market, the world's largest shale gas resources, and this bizarre and wasteful spectacle of ghost cities. But that very same country is also the world leader, by far, in energy transition, absolutely blowing the doors off of any other country in wind and solar deployment, in grid construction, in high-speed rail construction, and probably, before long, in electric vehicle deployment. How this plays out really depends on how well the Communist Party can steer its ship. As we discussed, managing the transition of millions of jobs away from heavy industry and manufacturing and into as yet unspecified new jobs, while simultaneously attempting a managed slowdown of the economy, is no easy task. It will be essential for the Communist Party to manage it well in order to maintain its credibility, but right now it has some serious challenges. 
According to a recent article in Bloomberg, it now takes about 83 days for the typical Chinese firm to collect on its receivables. Payment delays have spread from the industrial sector to the technology and consumer companies, and outstanding receivables at public companies are now up to almost $600 billion. This failure to pay suggests that sales and profit figures at Chinese companies could be weaker than they appear. Businesses and consumers are feeling the pain of a slowing economy and overcapacity, and corporate debt has hit record levels. Corporate insolvencies jumped 25% last year, and bankruptcies could jump 20% this year. But as James mentioned in the interview, China's 13th five-year plan has been unveiled, and it is squarely targeting these issues. It tackles the overcapacity in the manufacturing sector and the need to decarbonize and modernize it. It includes a 100 billion won support fund to pay for the relocation and training for millions of people who need to transition from idle production facilities to other new jobs. It puts a renewed focus on environmental protection and social welfare and aims to shift the country to a service and domestic consumption economy. These are all laudable goals, and the plan has received widespread approbation. But making this turn from a dirty manufacturing powerhouse to a cleaner, safer, more environmentally friendly economy based on services is an extremely difficult thing to do. Even when they're doing it well, as James pointed out, the Communist Party can be put in the position of having to deny their own success to save face. Very difficult. And it's not hard to imagine popular protests and economic liberalization leading to the party losing its grip on the economy. I wonder, too, who will now make the things that China intends to stop making, and what the effect will be on those other economies. Perhaps China's emissions, now falling, are simply going to shift to other developing countries. A decarbonizing China does not guarantee a decarbonizing world, unless nobody's going to make anything and we're all just going to give each other back rubs in the new world economy. But for now, I will suspend my disbelief and say thumbs up on China's 13th five-year plan. I have said before that energy transition takes many forms, and I'm struck by how different the paths toward transition are in China, in India, as we discussed in episode 11, and in Africa, as we discussed in episode 12. Lumping these countries together under a heading like developing world misses important distinctions. China is pursuing a similar path to the developed world, with large power plants and a ubiquitous power grid, and big transportation systems like its high-speed rail network. While India may have better luck pursuing networks of microgrids and smaller-scale transportation solutions, and sub-Saharan Africa may find that nanogrids and small, ultra-efficient, largely standalone solutions are best for them. It's a fascinating spectrum of approaches. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a report by Greenpeace, China's National Energy Administration, NEA, has ordered 13 provincial governments to suspend approvals of new coal-fired power plant projects and ordered another 15 provinces to delay construction of projects that have already been approved. 
Greenpeace estimates that up to 250 coal-fired power plant projects with a total of 170 gigawatts of capacity could be affected if the rules are fully implemented. However, at least 570 projects with 300 gigawatts of capacity could still come online despite NEA's claim that China already has 20% overcapacity in coal-fired power. Greenpeace calls the situation a coal power capacity bubble and seems to imply that the new capacity underway might not come online at all, noting that power generation from coal has plummeted as a result of slower power demand growth and the expansion of renewable energy. And in its story, Reuters notes that China's coal power sector now has the lowest utilization rates since 1978. Item 2. According to Power Minister Payush Goyal, India is aiming to move to 100% electric vehicles by 2030. A small working group has been formed, including the road minister, oil minister, and environment minister, to develop the plan. What's really interesting about the idea is that it aims to be self-financing, with zero financial support from the government. It would also give people electric cars for free, without a down payment, and then people would pay off the vehicle out of the savings on the petroleum products, because it's so much cheaper to drive a vehicle that runs on electricity than one that runs on oil. Who will provide the upfront financing was not explained, but I think the idea is sound. And, like an echo of our discussion on India in episode 11, and on power for the developing world in episode 12, Minister Goyal said that although the government is working on building a grid in northeast India, it will take time. So they're looking at off-grid solutions in the interim. Item 3. Scotland has crossed an important threshold by shutting down its last coal-fired power plant. The 47-year-old 2.4-gigawatt Longanet power station was the largest power plant in Scotland, providing about 10 terawatt-hours of electricity per year, enough to power over 2 million homes. A combination of surging offshore wind power, old age, high transmission costs due to its remote northern location, and higher carbon taxes spelled the end for the plant. Renewables now provide half of Scotland's electricity. Item 4. On a similar note, the Nanticoke Generating Station in Nanticoke, Ontario, Canada, which at 4 gigawatts was once North America's largest coal-fired power plant, is to be converted to a 44-megawatt solar farm. The site on the north shore of Lake Erie has been quiet since the plant was closed in 2013, but soon its transmission lines and other assets will be put back into service supplying clean energy. Before its closure, the plant was Ontario's largest polluter, and since Ontario completed its coal phase-out in 2014, the number of smog days in the province declined from 53 in 2005 to zero in 2015. The new solar plant will receive an average of 15.67 cents per kilowatt hour for its power under the Independent Electricity System Operator's Large Renewable Procurement Program, which is still a bit below the 17.5 cents per kilowatt hour that on-peak power cost consumers in November 2015, and considerably higher than the 8.3 cents per kilowatt hour that Ontarians paid for off-peak power last year. So it's not cheap but it's cheaper than the highest rate Ontarians already pay. And I think that the real significance is simply that we're repurposing coal plants to serve clean energy. And that, I think, is the wave of the future. And finally, item five. The U.S. Department of Energy has announced that it will help develop the Plains and Eastern Clean Line Project, a 705-mile DC transmission line that will deliver up to four gigawatts of cheap wind power from Oklahoma and Texas to the Mid-South and Southeast. 
The line will run from Guymon, Oklahoma, to Millington, Tennessee. Apparently, this would be the first use of congressional authority granted to the Department of Energy to provide transmission development, which was part of the Energy Policy Act of 2005, championed by President George W. Bush. Unfortunately, a group of Republican congressmen from Arkansas and elsewhere have vowed to oppose the line, which would run across their states. But the Southern Wind Energy Association vigorously supports the project, which would create supply chain jobs in Arkansas and Oklahoma to build and operate the line. I do hope the project gets built because increasing high voltage transmission capacity to distribute wind power from the Midwest to other parts of the country is undoubtedly a key infrastructural element of moving toward a more renewably powered grid. The Plains and Eastern line is one of six high voltage lines awaiting approval, representing a total of over 3,000 miles of transmission line and over 16 gigawatts of capacity. We need a great deal more transmission capacity than we have now to achieve our energy transition goals, and it's high time we got busy building it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.